That is the fourth chapter of Isaiah, and we'll commence our reading there at verse 1. Hear once again the word of our God. And in that day seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by thy name to take away our reproach. In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a defense. And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat and for a place of refuge and for a covert from storm and from rain. As far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearing this evening. On a night like tonight, it may surprise you that I won't really be making many comments regarding the diaconate. And in part the reason for that is because as we come to this moment, I think perhaps the greatest temptation that we need to quell is to take upon this sense of almost inevitability about such elections. I think congregations, ourselves included, can be tempted to think that this is purely mechanistic. As we come to elections for the eldership or the diaconate, it can seem quite very much like a utilitarian moment. Well, we certainly could use more elders, could use more deacons, therefore we have uh, an election. What I want to do instead is see that the scriptures show out for the church of Jesus Christ in every moment, that everything that we do, even in moments like these, we should be looking to something far greater, something far beyond ourselves. There are great promises that the church of Jesus Christ are given. And even in moments like these, our minds and our hearts need to be fixed upon those promises. And that's why our attention now is being directed to really a number of those promises that are given to us in this chapter of God's Word. The fourth of Isaiah, you'll note from really the second chapter till here, is really concerned with one basic idea. The prophet, as God's mouthpiece, comes to the church of old, and he is speaking in these three chapters about that day. He really begins in the second chapter by telling us what that day is. It is the last day. And as you read these three chapters in their entirety, you'll recognize that the prophet sets before the church under age, by the way, a church that that really had no interest in what the word of God said. He sets before them, nevertheless, the reality that there is a day coming, this swath of time coming, in which Gentiles will be brought in. You'll see nations that were once rebels to God, following their own vanities, now coming to the Lord Jehovah. That will happen in the day that the prophet preaches of here. But he also says that that ancient house of Abraham, 
Instead of being numbered among those at this time who will receive the Lord's mercy, they will be under divine wrath. It's a paradoxical day then, isn't it? The Gentiles will be brought in. They will receive grace. But the ancient house of Israel, judgment. That's the day that the prophet sets before the church under age. And of course, the question we ask is, well, what day is he referring to then? Well, the answer, of course, is given to us very plainly throughout the scriptures. The engrafting of the Gentiles, and at the same time, really the darkening of the church of old. These refer, of course, to the days of the gospel. The last days that are in view are the same days that the apostle has in view in the epistle to the Hebrews. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. In other words, what the prophet Isaiah does is he sets before the church of old the age of the new covenant. And as he does so, as we look particularly at our text, which is the fifth verse, he concludes by setting before this church that had turned itself hardened itself to the calls of God's prophets of blessings that would be known to the church in that time, in our time. And if you look at the fifth verse, we're told two things. We're told who will be the recipients of these blessings and really what this blessing is. I'll just direct your attention back to verse 5, and you'll notice here that the blessing is for all of those dwelling on Mount Zion. Now, that's the fifth verse, but if you look up just to the verse prior to the fourth, You'll notice here that those who are the inhabitants of Zion, says the prophet, are those whose filth is cleansed, whose blood is purged. And if you look even to the third verse, just the verse above that, we're told that these same ones, these inhabitants of Zion, are those who have a title or have a warrant to life. They have a warrant to live. And if you go to the second verse, just before that, you'll find that those who are the inhabitants of Zion in this age are those who are a remnant. Striking. The prophet does not describe these people as returning exiles. He describes those who inhabit Zion as a remnant, as a people who have survived. And the question, of course, is from what have they survived? Holding all that has gone before in in its place. Obviously, the answer is, these are those who have escaped the wrath to come. These are those who have escaped by looking to the Christ who was rejected by Abraham's ancient house. In other words, friend, the inhabitants of Zion are those who are called holy, those who have warned and entitled to life, those who have escaped the wrath to come because they've entrusted themselves to Jesus Christ. Well, that's the recipient. Those are the recipients, rather, of this blessing. But what is the blessing? That we find in this fifth verse. Upon her assemblies, says the prophet, a cloud and smoke by day, and the shining of a flaming fire by night. Now, obviously, the prophet is drawing down upon Old Testament history, history even before his own time. He takes us back to those wandering years in which Israel, drawn freshly out of the house of bondage, out of the furnace of affliction, is led by God through these special, through these miraculous signs. 
He's taking us, in other words, to those symbols in the Old Covenant that most clearly manifested God's gracious presence among his people to guide them and to protect them. And what the prophet says here is that in these last days, for those who have escaped the wrath to come, for the true remnant, God's people, in her dwelling places and in her assemblies, God has promised all that was in view in the fiery pillar and in the smoky cloud in the Exodus. He says very pointedly in the new covenant, Zion would know those blessings. And so, friend, what we have in this text very pointedly is a picture of the blessings that belong to the church, belong to the church even in our own day. Now, our main theme then is just this, that the church is promised still greater tokens of God's gracious presence. The church is promised still greater tokens of God's gracious presence. And I want us to consider then the two headings that come to us directly from the text. First of all, the presence itself that the prophet has in view. And then also the way in which that presence, if you like, is procured. And so take first of all the presence. I draw your attention just back for a moment to that phrase. The prophet says that what will be given her is a cloud and smoke by day and the flaming of fire by night. And as I've already said to you, this takes us back to the Exodus. But surprisingly, friend, it doesn't take us back, for instance, to 1 Kings 8. It doesn't take us back to that theophanic cloud, that glory cloud that filled the temple at its dedication. In fact, perhaps that might be the most natural thing that we would expect from the text. We're talking, of course, about those who inhabit Zion. We're talking about those who dwell rather than those who wander. But the prophet is very clear. He doesn't have that glory cloud in mind. It's the glory cloud of the wilderness years that he draws our attention toward. It's the cloud that you're given in Exodus 13 and in Exodus 40. That cloud that was especially for worshipping pilgrims en route to Canaan. Of course the question is why? Why is this the sign that the Spirit of God has given to the church of the New Covenant to set before us the glory that she will experience? In part we could say the reason why is because even though she is in some sense established in Canaan, she will still carry on with her that character of a pilgrim. She will still be one making her journey, as it were, to the heavenly kingdom. And so she still requires those kinds of pilgrim graces and mercies. But friend, I also want you to notice that in this text, as the prophet draws our attention back to that cloud, the scriptures themselves will interpret for us why the cloud and the pillar are so significant. I want you to notice, as we look through the scriptures, how this particular cloud, as opposed to the glory cloud of the temple, is used. Take, for instance, Exodus 13. When this cloud comes, it is expressly to lead them in the way. That's Exodus 13.21. This is a cloud of guidance. This is a, this is a vision and this is a miracle that is supposed to lead the church as she wanders through the desert. That was its function. And of course, friend, as you look through the promises that belong to the church in the new covenant age, 
See how Christ speaks of what's given to her. When he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Of course, originally given to the apostles, the benefit of that promise accrues to the church of the new covenant. The Spirit of God would dwell, guide his church in a special way. But take another way in which the glory cloud is used in the scriptures. Exodus 14. It, the cloud, the fiery pillar, came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. It was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these, so that the one came not near the other all the night. Now friend, the scriptures are very clear. To one, this cloud, this pillar, was something that meant darkness and separation and so judgment. But that self-same sign was to Israel comfort, was to Israel her consolation and her hope. The church of God. When the Spirit of God has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin, because they believe not on me, of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and he see me no more, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. You see, friend, to the, spirit of, to the church of God, the Spirit of God is called Comforter. But to the world who rejects Christ, that self-same Spirit is a spirit of judgment, a spirit of burden, just as it was in the case of the glory cloud in the Exodus. That cloud again referred to, now in number 16, when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron, that they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation, behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And in that moment, it was the glory of the Lord that demonstrated that his servants were his. It put to silence the gainsayers and the mockers. It came to set before the world a clear testimony that he was his people's defense, his messenger's refuge. And you see, friend, the church of Jesus Christ is promised no less. The Lord is faithful who shall establish you and keep you from evil. He is the one able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding Joy. In other words, friend, what the text tells us there is that the Lord God dwells in his church to be her defense, to establish her, to preserve her, just as that glory cloud preserved Moses, established that he was one called by God. But perhaps most to the point, when the glory cloud is referred to in the scriptures, Note particularly how the Lord himself describes its function. Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee, and believe thee forever. The Lord says to Moses in the cloud, I've come in this way to manifest that I am with you. To manifest myself and my glory that when you speak my words, they would know they are from me. Strikingly, that tells us two things about the cloud, doesn't it? 
For Moses, it was one of the most remarkable signs of his closeness with Jehovah. And for the onlooking world, it was a clear sign that God dwelt in his church. And when he spoke in his church, the glory of his word would be manifest. In other words, friend, what the glory cloud sets before us plainly is not only the presence of God in the abstract, but the presence of God active for the good of his people and the manifestation of his glory and even for the enjoyment that they will have with communion with him. It's the very self-same thing promised to the believer. If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. The same God who in the theophanic cloud dwelt so that all would see there was a God in Israel has promised in the church today still he will dwell, make his abode with all who look to Christ. My friend, we could go beyond that, but really that sets before us the profundity of such a sign. And the question, obviously, as we leave this image is, does this strike us? Do we marvel that the reality is that such grace is shown to sinners? That God is really a God who is pleased to guide sinners? When he would have been merely a God of judgment toward them, their executioner, He is offered to really separate them from their enemies in grace. To be their defense. And even more than that. To establish communion with him. All of those things, my dear friend, are really carried to us through this image. And the question is, is this a small thing to us? That God has promised to be so close with hell-deserving sinners. Such as we are. This is the presence that is promised to the church in our age. And though the church of old had it, what's the blessing of the new covenant is this. We enjoy the same substance, but to a greater degree of what the saints of old had. This is that which is held out to us. But coming now to our second point. The question of procurement is quite natural. How is it possible that such presence can be brought to the church? And to answer that question, we we don't need to go beyond the fourth chapter. Look with me just for a moment at the second verse. Isaiah 4, verse 2. In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. That second verse is really set as a parallel for us. There are two lines. Each line has a subject, and each subject is followed by two descriptions. And so you have the branch of the Lord stands parallel to the fruit of the earth, as both have then two descriptors added to them. And so these two lines are describing for us the same thing. The branch of the Lord is also the fruit of the earth. And we need to ask the question, well then, what are these things? What is this imagery now that the prophet has given to us? Well, the first thing is, if you look at the descriptions of the branch, 
our text reads beautiful and glorious. It's the only place in the entire Old Testament where those two descriptions are joined together. And there's good reason for that. The words beautiful and glorious here could be translated quite literally as majestic glory or glorious majesty. What we're speaking of here is glory in the superlative. The highest imaginable, the highest conceivable glory. That's the description of the branch the prophet gives to us. And then as we come to the next line, as he describes the fruit of the earth, you'll find that he describes it as excellent and comely. The word excellent there can be translated as Israel's boast, if you will. Now, this is a phrase that occurs all throughout the scriptures, but almost always negatively. It is always, almost always used to describe a vain boast. And a comeliness that really is groundless. A comeliness that is merely facade or veneer. The only place that this phrase is used positively is in the prophecy of Isaiah again. It's in Isaiah 28. And here are the words. In that day shall the Lord of hosts be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty unto the residue of his people. What is Israel's boast? Who is Israel's boast? It is Jehovah alone. And so, just from that second verse, the branch that the prophet has in view is the self-same branch that he has in view in the 11th chapter of his prophecy that Jeremiah has in view in the 23rd chapter of his. It is the branch that is called the Lord our Righteousness. Who alone is Israel's boast? Who alone procures such blessing for his people? The striking thing about verse 2 of chapter 4 in our text is that everything, every blessing the prophet gives to us that follows that verse is because this branch is for the escaped of Israel. Because Jesus Christ is for his people. All of these benefits are theirs. He is presented without equivocation or nuance as the source of our every good. And then we have to ask the question, well, for whom has Christ, the branch, procured these blessings? Our text tells us, as we turn back to the fifth verse, for the dwelling places of Zion. That is the individual homes, the individual dwellings, of those who look to Christ by faith and her assemblies. The word there meaning her public assemblies, her public meetings. The prophet tells us that this branch, the Lord our righteousness, has procured this gracious presence for his people in both cases, for her dwelling places and her assemblies. In fact, we see this in the scriptures, don't we? Take just for a moment what I read to you already from John 14. The promise that Christ gives to those who truly love him is this. That he will make his abode with them. The triune God will abide with his people individually. That one person who lodges their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has this promise sealed to them. Take Isaiah 26. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation be overpassed. 
The chambers of God's people, the places of their seclusion and and individual dwellings become their safe place, their haven. And of course, that is only by God's gracious design. Even Even in their chambers, their private places, the Lord will be gracious. They may know God's gracious presence even there. And friend, this is why our forebears talked, isn't it? About the necessity for a Christian to view their home as a little church. William Booth was very emphatic. We should long to see that the Lord God dwells graciously in our homes. Clearly and manifestly guided by His Spirit working mightily even to separate within us those things that need to die, that we might be defended, that we might know intimate communion with the Most High. And what's striking, my dear friend, is that in this text, the believers promised this. That cloudy pillar, that smoke, that set before the onlooking world the reality that God was in Israel. The prophet says, even in the individual dwelling places of Zion, they may know such blessing. They may know such grace. But then secondly, friend, we're told here that this glory would also be known in her assemblies. And as we look throughout the scriptures, of course we'll find cases, like the one I mentioned to you from the temple, where the Lord draws near to his church, Underage, the church of the old covenant, and he manifests miraculously his presence. But how does the Lord manifest in the public assemblies of his people today his gracious presence? The apostle tells us plainly. I'm reading to you from 1 Corinthians 14. Come in, let there come in one that believeth not or one unlearned. He is convinced of all, he is judged of all. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. The context that I've just read to you is that of preaching, the public worship of God. Note what the apostle says. In that moment, an unbeliever would fall down on his face, worship God, and report that God is in you. Of the truth. For the new covenant church, that is a promise that is held out, even for her public assemblies. And that leads to a question, doesn't it? And this perhaps is the cutting question Is the Lord among us? Is the Lord among us? Of course, the answer to that question we quickly give by saying yes. Yes, the Lord is here because we are looking to Christ. But the next question we have to ask is, well, what tokens of his presence do we have? And what tokens of his gracious presence do we lack? You see, my dear friend, I would say that most come into an election not asking those questions. But how needful is it? Looking at a text that promises such great things to us, to our homes, but especially to our public assemblies. What tokens of divine presence do we have among us? You see, my dear friend, as we look at this passage and as we close, 
we have so many promises that are given to the church. So many promises, even in this text, that hold out to us great things. That we might walk so closely with the Most High. That we might know such great blessing. Certainly, my dear friend, we should marvel that such things have been given to such sinners. And so this should be for our encouragement. Our gracious God, even in a time of decline, has preserved for his church these wonderful words of consolation. He is a God who is pleased to manifest his gracious presence among them. And certainly this should inform our prayers, shouldn't it? Uh, Beloved, when we come to prayer, are we praying along these lines? Are we praying for God to descend upon our assemblies, not in any visible form, but in the form that I've just described to you from 1 Corinthians, where the Spirit of God moves mightily among us and sets before the onlooking world as souls are brought to Christ that God is in us of a truth. Do we pray in earnest for these kinds of things? Well, beloved, the reason, part of the reason why the promises are given to us as they are in the Scripture is that we might pray them. And so we must pray them. And the encouragement to pray them is in the fact that the one who is promised is the God who cannot lie. But also for encouragement, beloved, is this wonderful thought that the prophet never strays far from. To whom is this promise given? I want you to look just back with me for a moment at verse 4. These daughters of Zion, these are those who are called holy in the verse before. These are those of the warrant and title life. In verse 4 we're told this. The Lord will have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem. Beloved, she was filthy. She was polluted with blood. And by God's grace and his free grace alone, she would know God's gracious presence. Even as the prophet holds out to us those things that we should crave, those things that we should pray in earnest to be manifest among us, he reminds us that if we receive these things, it is only the freeness of his grace that brings it to us. And those blessings, that blessing of God's gracious presence, friend, that's only a foretaste of eternal glory. And remember that even in eternal glory, it is still only free grace that we laud. Even as we stand there and the presence of God and the glory of God is conspicuous to us in ways not presently, still, as it is for the new covenant age, still will be then that sinners can only extol the freeness of God's grace. The longer we enjoy the glory of heaven through millions of ages, the debt to the Lamb, to him that sitteth on the throne, will be the greater and shall grow infinitely. Praises for eternity shall take nothing down of the dead. No, says Rutherford, you are the sworn and overengaged and drowned debtors of Jesus. As we come to an election this evening, what is it that we as a congregation should be longing for? 
It's not merely that we should have more added to our number of officers, as it should be in all of our things, all that we would do, that we might have more of God. And beloved, as we come to this election then this evening, if we enjoy that, if by God's grace, even through this election this evening, we know something more of his mercy, remember it is only because we are debtors to free grace that we receive this or any other good thing. You are the sworn and over-engaged and drowned debtors of Jesus. Amen.